This is a podcast that seeks to bring the church world and the art world closer together. My name is Matt Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'd invite you to please subscribe or follow this podcast. Uh, And then on Apple, give us a five-star review if you can. Uh, And if you do, I will winterize your pool. And if you'd like to advertise on this podcast, uh, you can inquire about that by emailing me at mattcastworld, that's all one word, mattcastworld at gmail.com. Well, the oft-quoted proverb says that a picture is worth a thousand words. And while many have obviously used that phrase over the years, including Albert Einstein, it seems that the quote can be attributed to a man named Fred Bernard, Bernard was an advertising executive about a hundred years ago, and he used the phrase for a piece that he was writing about the power of graphics in advertising. But even in the midst of that, he gave attribution to the quote to an ancient Chinese proverb with basically the same verbiage. And I think the phrase has survived this long because it is immutably true. In spite of the development of video technology and even handheld live video production and filming, photographs are still at the very center point of all social media platforms. In fact, today, everyone kind of fancies him or herself as a photographer. I think there are 310 million photographers in America today. What makes photography so powerful to us? What is it about a still image that uh, really can move us or shape us? I think especially in areas like photojournalism, a photograph can literally shape public opinion. I mean, the picture tells its own story. Of course, that story depends upon the narrator of that story. And I think a number of photographers are fine to let their photos just stand without commentary and allow the viewer to build their own narrative. However, though, when third parties get involved, uh, the photographer can be put in an awkward place. What I want to do on this podcast is I want to go through, let's call it three famous American photographs that I believe truly shaped American opinion and sentiment. And then I want to use a very recent example from life uh, just to show how it still is with us, even though some of these photographs I'm going to speak of are more than 100 years old. So let's start with the first example. Uh, Let's talk about the Civil War photos, uh, specifically of Alexander Gardner. Now, this is a guy who really does not get the credit um, he deserves because, you, you know, if you grew up in school and they, you, you were taught about the Civil War, uh, there's usually one word that or one name that pops up into your head when you hear Civil War photography, and it's Matthew Brady. 
Now, what needs to be understood with the Civil War is that Matthew Brady mainly served in an advisory role. He he sort of owned the company, and then he sort of farmed out the work to about three different photographers. Um, so he just had a team who actually documented the Civil War. And in my opinion, I believe Alexander Gardner was the best of these and definitely the most unappreciated uh, of the era. It's too bad that his name hasn't followed in history. But here's how these photos, I think, shaped public opinion. Now, before photography, um, war was often viewed quite romantically. Um, it is sort of portrayed as brave men gallantly riding or striving or marching against their foe with great swashbuckling tales of bravery and courage. Well, I think it's because no one ever saw war <laughs> other than the soldiers. And both of these things happened at the start of the Revolutionary War, but there was no photography then. And it also happened at the onset of the Civil War. So as the first battle of the Civil War was about to commence, um, and it has two names, as only the Civil War could have, you would either call it the first battle of Bull Run, or you would call it the Battle of Manassas. It just depends on who you were rooting for. But as it was shaping up to begin, and both sides were sort of lining up cabin and, uh, or excuse me, cannon and soldiers, uh, wealthier families showed up, in, in, you know, in full regalia and, and stationed themselves not very far from the battlefield, bringing picnic supplies and food, and they would just sit on the ground in order to observe the battle. You, you know, like we would watch a football game on Sunday today. They, they really had no idea of the carnage of war because it had never been seen before. But Alexander Gardner would take photos of basically everything but the battle itself. And I think it was because of the technology at the time, because you one had to remain completely still for the photograph to turn out. Otherwise, everything would be blurred. And of course, people aren't standing still uh, in battle. But he took pictures of everything else, of soldiers in camp uh, doing various things to, to just bide their time or uh, food being cooked or eaten or fires being made. Um, but then there was the aftermath of battles. And as his and other photos were being published and reproduced for the public for the first time, it gave a much grittier and I think truthful depiction of war. And suddenly, and, and one could say since then, Really, the romance of war uh, was gone. I think it shaped Americans' attitudes about what bitter conflict and war really was about. For the second example, I want to use the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. Uh, this may be the single most famous and effective photo in American history. Uh, I would invite you to both read the book, Flags of Our Fathers, as well as uh, watch the film of the same name, directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, the book was written by uh, last name Bradley and escapes, the first name escapes, but his father was in the photo. But the Pulitzer Prize winning photo was captured by Joe Rosenthal 
of the Associated Press. Uh, it occurred atop Mount Suribachi, which is the highest point of the island, which is over 500 feet up. And they took the photo five days after the Marines had landed and fought. Uh, the battle was essentially over by that point, but there were still pockets of resistance really hidden within the mountain that had to be dealt with for, for weeks to come. But this was during a lull in the action. Uh, and I remember the first time I saw the photo, um, of course, decades after it happened, and I made an assumption from the image that uh, this happened almost during battle under a hail of gunfire as, you know, brave soldiers lifted a flag in defiance, you know, of the Japanese like this, this belongs to us now. But only when I read the book did I realize it, yeah, there was really no fighting going on at the time, but it was, it was still a, a statement of defiance without a doubt. The photo was taken on February 23rd, 1945, and Rosenthal sent it to his bosses at the AP. Well, less than a day later, because they knew they had a winner, it appeared on the cover of, obviously, every newspaper that they touched on Sunday morning. And then the United States government saw the photo, and they saw an opportunity. The country was starting to run low on money to fund the war effort after three years of fighting, uh, I believe by this point they had already won victory in Europe, but they still had to defeat the Japanese. And so that image sort of became the centerpiece of their seventh war bond campaign. And of course, the public responded like never before, and they saw uh, a surge in support for the war. So that by July 11th of that same year, it was on a U.S. postage stamp, which was a much bigger deal then than now. And nine years later, it would become the model for the Marine Corps War Memorial in uh, Washington, D.C. There was a rumor that sprung up during that time that the picture had been staged. Um, but a friend of Rosenthal's in the press corps was actually filming it while it was happening. Uh, showing that the rumor wasn't true. So even the, the greatest and most appreciated and beloved photos can't really escape scrutiny uh, and rumor. Here's how Joe Rosenthal reflected on his achievement of this photograph in an interview done decades later. This picture has done quite a lot to attract attention of people to what those men were doing out there and the story they then want to get more of the story of what kind of a battle it was, what their uh, courage and tenacity was, and the great losses, great sacrifice. I'm really glad because it, I can feel that vicariously I had some kind of part in, in the battle, somewhere I think. And I get an awful lot of that. And uh, if, if this is really being egocentric, so be it. My third example, I'm going to spend a little more time with because it's not quite as known, although you may have seen the image. It's called Saigon Execution. And I want to thank uh, an online article from the BBC for a lot of this information. 
This may be the most famous photo during the Vietnam War. So here's the background, in case you're not familiar with how all this happened. The United States was fighting on the side of the South Vietnamese Army because they were anti-communist. And the Northern Army, or the Viet Cong, they were pro-communist. They were funded by, um, certainly by China and, and of course, uh, the Soviet Union. And the United States was sent there by, uh, first by President Kennedy to stem the rising tide of communism in the world. And so the battle between both sides waged on for years. Uh, I think the first troops landed there in 62, maybe, 63. So now five or six years later, 1968, the Viet Cong, who we viewed as the enemy, began what was known as the Tet Offensive. It was, uh, it was a, a holiday observed in, in Vietnam, and there was sort of an understood peace uh, ceasefire agreement during that commemoration. But they broke that and surprised the South with an invasion that was meant to take territory uh, and ultimately win the war, dispirit the South and the Americans. And it largely worked. Uh, they took over many cities uh, in the midst of the fighting. The, the big prize was the capital, which was Saigon. But they were not successful. Even though there was massive street fighting, it was chaotic. Um, a brigadier general, who we will talk about in a second, rallied the troops and fended off the invasion force of Saigon, although there were tons of casualties. So as things began to calm down, one particular day, and this may have been the day they officially turned back the enemy. This is where the photograph occurred. A Viet Cong squad leader, his name was Nguyen Van Lem. He had been captured by the South Vietnamese. He was handcuffed. They had identified him as part of the enemy. And they found him on the street, actually near a mass grave. He was not in uniform. He only wore a plaid shirt and black shorts. But they knew he was from uh, the Viet Cong. So uh, the Southern Army brought him to their general. His name was his his last name was Luan. I can't even begin to pronounce his full name. I won't try. But Brigadier General Luan of the South Vietnamese Army was presented uh, with this uh, gentleman named Lem, who was. Uh, on the opposite side. And Associated Press photographer Eddie Adams was a few feet away for this confrontation, so he just began taking photos. He assumed uh, that uh, uh, the, the Brigadier General was going to interrogate him or just scream and yell at him, whatever it was going to be. So he wanted to document that with photos. He was surprised, however, uh, by what was about to happen. General Luan took his snub-nosed pistol he extended his right arm and shot Lem in the head in the middle of the day, right on the street. No trial, no jury, no presentation of facts, literal, quote, street justice. And Adams happened to capture the exact moment that the bullet penetrated his head. It was a powerful image. So by the next day, the photo 
was on the front pages of many American papers, including the New York Times. Now, no Americans were involved in the incident, but it made those in the United States who supported the war effort now to question who and what we were fighting for. It almost made the whole country feel like the war was unwinnable. Uh, it was chaotic. It was a waste of American lives. And it really began to turn the tide of American sentiment for the war. Now, when the incident occurred, and a little bit later, General Lawan said, if you hesitate, if you didn't do your duty, the men won't follow you. So what his motivations were aren't totally clear, whether it was just revenge, or there may have been something personal involved. It's believed that the man he killed, uh, Lem, had murdered the wife and six children of one of his colleagues. So there certainly may have been a personal element as well. But photographer Eddie Adams initially saw General Lawan as a cold, callous killer, and really, who wouldn't? But as he traveled with him during the war and got to know him, he said he is a product of modern Vietnam and his time. Well, the following year, Adams would win the Pulitzer Prize for Saigon execution. But Eddie Adams was terribly conflicted about it because there is a cash prize that comes with the award. The anti-war movement saw him as a hero for documenting this, and, but President Nixon, many families and school children across the country saw him in the opposite light because it was so brutal and it was a, a very harsh image for anyone to see, especially children. He felt increasing guilt for receiving a cash prize at the expense of two lives, first Lem, who was shot, of course, and Luan, who was demonized. Eddie Adams and General Luan would stay in touch, and after the war, uh, their friendship grew. So when Luan fled South Vietnam because they had lost the war, uh, he asked for admission to the United States. Well, the INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service, wanted to deport him which was solely influenced by that one photo. In fact, they approached Eddie Adams to testify against Luan, but Adams instead testified on his behalf, even appearing on television to explain the circumstances of the photograph. Well, Congress eventually lifted the deportation and Luan was allowed to stay in the States. He ended up opening a restaurant in a Washington, D.C. suburb. But he was eventually forced into retirement when publicity about his past soured his business. And Adams recalled that on his last visit to the restaurant, he found abusive graffiti about Lawan scrawled in, in the uh, bathroom. It shows the power of photography. Quote, there's something in the nature of a still image that deeply affects the viewer and stays with them says Ben Wright, Associate Director for Communications at the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History. Hal Buell, who was Adams' photo editor at the AP, says the experience taught Adams about the limits of a single photograph telling a whole story. Buell says, Eddie is quoted as saying that photography is a powerful weapon. 
Photography by its nature is selective. It isolates a single moment, divorcing that moment from the moments before and after that possibly lead to adjusted meaning. And that brings up our final and most recent example. A few weeks ago, a photo was taken by photographer Paul Ratya showing Border Patrol agents on horseback chasing and ushering Haitian immigrants back across the border after they had illegally entered the country and then briefly gone back to Mexico. Last month, an encampment of 15,000 people, think about that, 15,000 people, two-thirds were originally from Haiti, but they've been believed to have been living in South America for the last 10 years. But they were two-thirds of this encampment. They crossed the Rio Grande River into Texas illegally. And all 15,000 people were living under the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas while immigration officials tried to figure out what to do with them. So some Haitians had recrossed the border into Mexico, and upon their return, were being forced back into Mexico by border agents on horseback. Well, Paul Ratya was there to capture it on film. And the image, there are many images, but one in particular, would arouse anger by millions of Americans in that it looked as if the agents were holding some sort of a leather strap or even a whip or using it as a whip and striking the Haitians with it. Harsh reaction reached the executive branch of government with statements from both uh, Vice President Harris and President Biden. What I saw depicted about um, those individuals on horseback treating human beings the way they were is horrible. And um, I fully support what is happening right now, which is a thorough investigation into exactly what is going on there. Um, but human beings should never be treated that way. And I'm deeply troubled about it. And I'll also be talking with Secretary Mayorkas today. Do you take responsibility for the chaos that's unfolding? Of course I take responsibility. I'm president, but it was horrible what to see, as you saw. To see people treated like they did, horses barely running them over, people being strapped, it's outrageous. I promise you those people will pay. But there was a problem. It turns out those weren't really leather straps or, or whips that the border agents were holding. They were the horse's reins, which basically are the steering wheel of the horse. It guides the horse in a very specific reaction and movement in order to appropriately move an illegal border crosser while avoiding doing harm to them. So how do we know this? Is, is this just spin? Well, the photographer, Paul Ratya from Las Cruces, New Mexico, gave an exclusive interview to an El Paso News affiliate to clarify. And men started running, running, trying to go around the horses. And that's kind of when the whole thing happened. I didn't ever see him with anybody with the thing. He was swinging it, um, but I didn't see him actually take, you know, whip someone with it. You know, so those, those, that's something they can easily misconstrued um, when you're looking at the pictures. But the damage had been done. Press Secretary Jen Psaki announced new policy 
for the Border Patrol. There is an investigation the President certainly supports overseen by this, the Department of Homeland Security, which he has conveyed will, uh, will happen quickly. I can also convey to you that the Secretary also conveyed to civil rights leaders earlier this morning that we would no longer be using horses in Del Rio. Uh, so that is something, a policy change that has been made in response. The power of a photo. I think this recent incident is a great reminder of the power we have as artists. There are certain art forms that have no context. And that's probably why they're so powerful. And we have to be prepared as artists for the fallout that our creation can make. Okay, let's lower the stakes just a little bit. We often say how fake Facebook and Instagram are in that the photos on there do not depict the reality of our lives. It's always the great moments. I actually do know of one incident in which a, a Christian family, their, I guess, influencers on Instagram, were having a knockdown, dragout argument in the car on the way to church until mom realized they hadn't posted yet that day. And so she told everybody to smile as she photographed the, quote, perfect family headed for the house of God. The power of a photo, right? I think it's important for us, the viewer, when we see a powerful image, to understand the context of the photo, if we can find it, before filling in our own narrative. I think it's important as creators to take ownership of what we make or what we publish or what we paint or sculpt. And I think Paul Ratya did the right thing here. It would have been easy for him just to stay silent and just let chaos ensue. If he didn't, it could have only further divided our country uh, in remaining silent. I do think it's a bit irresponsible when we create something and then just sit in our ivory tower and let things burn around us. We really need to be ready to bring clarity when necessary. This is a powerful art form. And I don't think if we bring clarity, it doesn't take away from the image. It may hopefully prevent outrage that leads to hatred and violence. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of the MattCast. Please share this with a friend. We'd love to expand our MattCast family. For questions or comments, please email me at mattcastworld at gmail.com, mattcastworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. If you'd like more information, go to our site, mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.